0: The air marshals and generals had mapped out the air phase of the invasion. The kids I used to know at Kelly Field in San Antonio, among others, were the ones who made it succeed. And the story of this war can't be told properly until the story of certain civilians is told, such as those inside France who have been awaiting and fighting for liberation these last four years. Not much is known about what the French people have done to help the invasion so far. A good guess is... That they're doing plenty at least it's clear what side they're on ninth air force flyers returned to england this afternoon to tell how french farmers and their families waved eagerly to the allied flyers as they rounded up farming animals and herded them to places of safety today's story must include mention of that prototype of john bull winston churchill who set the house of commons cheering with his optimistic reports on the invasion's progress it must include mention of britain's king george who unashamedly called his people to prayer there was general charles de gaulle one of the few important frenchmen who wouldn't concede french defeat in his country's darkest hour and who now is in england to watch the beginning of his homeland's liberation but the important guys today were the gi joes and their buddies on the sea and in the air wearing the uniforms of america britain and the countries which hitler once foolishly thought
1: Had conquered.
0: And today's story must include mention of the people on this island, those people who were pledged by their Prime Minister four years ago last Sunday to fight on the beaches and the landing grounds and in the streets, but never surrender. They took today's news phlegmatically, but that's no criticism. The British people are by nature calm and rather sober minded. Their coolness was one big reason that they stood while other nations were falling in 1940. And their ordeals in this war have been all the more sobering. They're tired, and tired people don't dance in the streets, even on D-Day. They probably won't even dance in the streets on Armistice Day. I studied the people of London both before and after the landings in France had been announced. The first glimpse was after Ed Murrow had phoned me and told me to get to such and such a building as soon as possible. I was positive immediately that D-Day had dawned because the building to which Ed dispatched me was the building from which the big communique was to be issued. I set out as London was going to work and the crowds I weaved through were composed of shop girls, businessmen, and a few whose guards suggested manual labor. They looked like just about any going to work crowd any place in the world. Pittsburgh, Chicago, San Francisco. Some looked sleepy, some were quite frisk. Some were neatly dressed and some were otherwise. There were white-lipped girls who apparently had got up too late to put on lipstick and intended to do so at their offices or shops. But the clothes they wore neatly or carelessly were of 1939 and 1940 vintage. The lipsticks the girls wore or neglected to wear was a hard, almost chalky substance war stuff and those who looked tired weren't suffering from lack of a full night's sleep they reflected almost five years of late in the front lines of war i felt like yelling out it's happened we've invaded europe because what was started today is what these people have been working and fighting for since the bedraggled fugitives from dunkirk staggered back to their homes four years ago this week three or four hours later When I went out into the streets of London again, I learned how the people would have reacted had I spilled the big secret with which I was bursting. They would have said, as many did say to me after communique number one had been broadcast, that's good. And they would have said it, as they did say it later, very calmly and matter-of-factly. They wouldn't have appeared jubilant, but as a policeman said to me tonight, they were jubilant inside. I return you now to CBS in New York.
2: Columbia's news headquarters in New York once again. It's time now to pause for station identification. I just want to take this opportunity to assure all of you, our listeners, that we are remaining on the air at this point and indefinitely continuing our invasion coverage. And I want also to remind the station staff at our affiliated stations around the country that we are continuing in 30 seconds after uh, the signal which I shall now give. This is Bob Trout speaking in New York. This is CBS Columbia's News Headquarters in New York, Bob Trout speaking. We've heard from our Columbia correspondent in London, Charles Shaw, just before we pause for station identification. And now we are going to go to Washington to hear a Columbia correspondent in Washington, Joseph C. Harsh, who has seen the cities of Berlin and the cities of Washington both during the war. He is going to compare these two wartime capitals for us. So now to Washington,
3: Joseph C. Harsh reporting. The task of a commanding general ceases when the battle begins. He does the training and the planning for that battle. Once it has been joined, it is up to the field commanders and to the men at the front to carry through. If he has done his job of planning and preparing as well as he can, he waits for the outcome with sober confidence. That, in effect, is the atmosphere of Washington tonight. This is the city where more than in any one other, the shape of today's great events was formed. It might be well to recall this fact that the invasion of the continent of Europe is a professional American military plan. Long before there was any demand raised for it from Russia or by Russia's friends, the top generals and admirals of our own American forces had concluded that the only way to defeat Germany in such a war as this was by frontal assault. If the Russian promptings had any influence, it was when the spokesmen of the three powers sat down to make the final decisions. The Russian vote with the American carried the day for the concept of going to meet the enemy in front where he was strong and where the road lay straight to his heart, not around by the back door, which may have seemed easier to some, but which also meant the longer time and the longer strain, and with uncertainty at the end of the long prospect. This then is the city which bred the plan, and this is the city where the means to make it effective were formulated and delivered in blueprint to American industry. How nearly perfectly the job has been done remains to be seen and perhaps remains to be argued in future years. But it has been done as well as Washington and the American system of government could do it. The men have been provided in the full strength which our leaders considered necessary. They have been given all the training our armed forces knew how to give them. Unquestionably, the best training American troops have ever had. And they have been given superlative equipment produced by an industrial miracle of the ages. All this Washington has done. So today, when the news came, it could only sit back and pray earnestly that it had been done well enough. The reaction here was untinged by any false hopes or unwarranted assumptions. No promises of easy or a sure victory have ever been permitted to come out here, and they are not felt. No one knows what the result will be. They only know that a great and well-trained and well-equipped force has been set in motion, and that if, a, if it all goes even moderately well, Its efforts should be crowned with success. It knows enough now from two and a half years of war not to jump to any quick conclusions. Making a landing is only the first move in the invasion. Washington has learned how to wait for such a move to develop as it must slowly in its own due course. Thus it waited today with intense interest, with burning hope, with confidence but without illusions. One can only wonder how different the atmosphere must be tonight in the city where this war was planned quite another way, in Berlin. We know how it was there when things were going Hitler's way, before Pearl Harbor brought Washington into play as the antagonist in this great struggle. As one of the American correspondents who was there when we were still neutral, I can describe it then. It was a city where the leaders were arrogantly and completely confident of success. It was also a city where the people at first doubted and then believed when the first victories rolled in. I remember the grandstands which went up in the heart of Berlin at the time of the fall of France and were left standing all during the fall and early winter of 1941 because the Germans thought Britain would surrender under the the punishment of the Luftwaffe. Finally, when Hitler realized that he would have to fight Russia, the stands came down and the people began to doubt and worry again. What has happened since then we can only conjecture from limited evidence from the swiss border we get stories today that the german people were shocked and bewildered and angered this morning by the news that allied landings had been made successfully in france we can't build much speculation on such evidence the neutrals around germany have been the channels too often for the transmission of distorted or even deliberately false versions of what is happening inside germany but this This one has some of the earmarks of credibility. All the information we have received from inside Germany bears out one central conclusion, that Berlin has indulged dangerously in confident predictions about the strength of the German West Wall. The recurring doubts of the German people have been kept down by the picture of a Western barrier which could never be broken. Berlin has ceased to promise its people victory, but it has promised a draw which would be won by failure of the invasion. The invasion has not yet succeeded, but its opening move has gained a foothold on the French coast. I can well believe that this has come as a bitter shock to a people conditioned to expect a different result. This in itself could explain why Berlin propaganda, which began this morning by exaggerating the extent of our penetrations, veered around towards the end of the day to extravagant claims of successful German countermeasures. Washington is not plagued and fettered today by false promises. In all probability, Berlin tonight is caught up in the trap of its own web of falsehoods. We return you now to New York. Back at Columbia's news headquarters in New York, we have a
2: dispatch from Atlanta tonight which tells us that the Air Force's Materiel Command has promised that as the invasion of Europe progresses, new weapons will be poured into the attack. Jet propulsion fighters are on the way, super-flying fortresses, rocket guns, and other equally as fantastic but real, the command said. And the district supervisor in Atlanta, Colonel R.W. Propst, tells us that the full story cannot yet be told, but American parents Mm. who have sons in the thick of the fighting in France and elsewhere can be assured that the equipment furnished them gives them the best possible chance for victory and survival. And that brings us to the point on how the United States has received the news that D-Day has at last come and is indeed almost 24 hours old by now. Ned Kalmer of Columbia of CBS World News is here in our Columbia News headquarters in New York with a piece on how the news was received in the United States. And now here is Ned Calmer.
4: Historically, D-Day has been one of the most important days Americans have ever lived. But like the British, we're learning to take this war in our stride. In most American cities today, you wouldn't have noticed anything much out of the ordinary in the everyday look of the streets and the faces of American men and women. We made no show of our emotions. But nearly every one of us by now has a personal stake in the action on the battlefront. If not a member of the immediate family, then a relative or a close friend. And it was the thoughts of those men who are doing the fighting while we sit safe at home that dominated most of us today as we went about our routine activities. That's why President Roosevelt's most solemn talk of two hours ago, his radio address in which he led the country in prayer for divine help in our enterprise of arms, has proved the keynote of this invasion day. Its measured tones, the hushed solemnity of the occasion, were the true import of what D-Day meant for us all. So it wasn't a day of rejoicing, but a day of quiet pride and confidence that the sacrifices Americans are making on the battlefront shall not be made in vain. It was a day of churchgoing, and many American communities called public gatherings to commemorate the day in this vein. A great mass assembly was held in New York City. Conspicuously absent from these unfestive meetings were the war workers who are making the guns that our men are carrying into action in France. D-Day was a day of full wartime pressure for the American industrial machine. Baseball games were called off. Racetracks shut down. Some newspapers carry no advertising tonight in order to give full coverage to the invasion. At West Point today, a great cheer went up at the graduation exercises. This was because a boy named John Eisenhower was receiving his diploma. His mother, the wife of the invasion chief, was asleep like millions of other Americans when the general issued his historic communique number one, announcing that the invasion had begun. And when the girl reporter gave her the news, Mrs. Eisenhower got her voice under control and then said, why didn't somebody tell me?
2: That was Ned Calmer telling us about how America has received the news that D-Day has come and, as a matter of fact, has now gone. Here's a brief dispatch from London dated Wednesday. Prime Minister Winston Churchill promises a new statement in the House of Commons today, that's Wednesday, on overnight developments in the Allied invasion of France. It's now revealed that between his two statements, which he made in two appearances at the House of Commons yesterday, Tuesday, the Prime Minister flew to the motor caravan from which General Eisenhower is directing the invasion somewhere in rural England. You know, sometime earlier uh, during Tuesday, the Brazzaville radio broadcast that General Eisenhower had established headquarters in France, but that has subsequently been denied, and here it is denied again in this brief dispatch from London, saying that the Prime Minister, Winston Churchill, has flown to the motor caravan from which General Eisenhower is directing the invasion somewhere in rural England. Those of you who stayed with us all during... Last night's broadcast, which began shortly after midnight and continued until 10 o'clock in the morning, New York Time, will remember that we got some uh, very interesting news from Prime Minister Churchill and his appearances at the House of Commons. We got some of the most specific details and the freshest news that we had had on the invasion up to that point, and now we are told that on Wednesday morning in England, the Prime Minister will make a new statement in the House of Commons on overnight developments. Meanwhile, to sum up the situation as briefly as possible, we can remember that at 10 o'clock Eastern wartime, the President, in his broadcast in Washington, said, the invasion is a success so far, and about 30 minutes later, Columbia's correspondent Edward R. Murrow, speaking from London, summed it up by saying, a brilliant beginning. And now, here at our news headquarters in New York, is William L. Shirer, who is here to discuss for us for a few moments, German General's whom our Allied troops in northern France are now facing. Here's Mr.
5: Shira. Uh, Just a word about the German commanders uh, in charge of the the armies uh, whom General Eisenhower's forces are facing on the beaches of France tonight. Uh, General Eisenhower's opposite number is Field Marshal von Rundstedt. He's 69 years old and the oldest of the top German generals. Thus, he is 18 years older than General Eisenhower. On the other hand, he is undoubtedly the best general Hitler has. I learned something about him when covering the German armies, first in Poland and then later in the German drive through Holland, Belgium, and France just four years ago this month. In the Polish campaign in September 1939, von Rundstedt commanded the German army group South, that swept through southern Poland and sealed the doom of the Polish army in a little over a week's time. The next spring in the West, the spring of 40, he made even a more amazing record. As commander of the German Army Group A, in the center of the Western Front, it was von Rundstedt who achieved the now famous breakthrough across the Meuse River to the seacoast that split the Anglo-French armies and brought on their disaster. In Russia von Rundstedt commanded the so-called Army Group South, which swept through the Ukraine in the early part of the war. The Russians considered von Rundstedt the outstanding German commander opposing them. But he did meet his match in Russia, and now he is matched against General Eisenhower. The other two top German generals facing us in the invasion now are Marshal Rummel the over-publicized leader of the Axis forces in Africa, and Marshal Blazkowicz, the latter a comparatively unknown general, at least in this country. <clears throat> general Blazkowicz, actually, is one of the team of German generals who made a big name for himself in Germany during the Polish and French campaigns. As commander-in-chief of the Eastern Military District in Poland, it was he who helped plan the German invasion of Russia, and he took a very prominent part in the early part of that war. In von Rundstedt and Blaskowitz, if not in Rommel, the Allied commanders are up against two of Germany's best generals. But as one who saw them operate in Poland and then in the West, I imagine that they are not as confident now as they were then. For one thing, the opposition is quite a different thing now, and so are their own once unbeatable forces.
2: That was William L. Shara here at our news headquarters in New York discussing German generals. And now, Columbia's military analyst, Major George Fielding Elliott, has a rather similar piece to discuss this evening. Major Elliott is going to talk about German defenses. Here
6: is Major Elliot. Uh, during the past hour or two, we have received uh, two dispatches, Stated, uh, the Supreme Headquarters Allied Expeditionary Force uh, about the defenses of the coast of France, the so-called Atlantic Wall. It seems that the Germans, in planning their beach defenses, left by necessity rather than by design a number of fundamental weak spots. The spots are rather stretches of beach between the strong only fortified major seaports, and that particular stretch across which the Americans drove into France today and their British comrades were uh, selected many months ago as the best point of attack, but only recently did the Germans seriously start to build up the defenses there, and the attack found these defenses uh, far less heavily gunned and the defenses themselves far less well built up than the great port areas, Uh, such, uh, for example, as the Elbe and Weser estuaries, the Hook of Holland, and in France, the ports of Dunkirk, Calais, Boulogne, Dieppe and Le Havre, and uh, St. Malo, Brest, Lorient, Nantes, and Bordeaux, all of which are large seaports and are very heavily fortified. Uh, It is, of course, to we realized that a seaport, a well-equipped seaport, is one of the objectives that an invading force will seek to attain as soon as possible. To all indications, the Allies took advantage of the German failure to fortify the uh, stretch between the Havre and Sherberg. It remained almost without beach obstacles. And the inshore defenses were nothing like as massive as those stretching for many miles on either side. This left a breach of about 60 miles between the northern wing of the defenses, uh, which ended at Le Havre, and the southern chain, which uh, began at Cherbourg. It was a, uh, the Germans in erecting their defenses had to uh, erect them just as we've had to do many things on a system of priorities. They On the French coast, they erected their heaviest defenses on the French side of the Straits of Dover, where the distance to England is shortest, and where perhaps, therefore, they felt they had the most reason to expect attack. Second priority was given to the Seine Estuary, of the Port of Le Havre, and to the Port of Sherbourg. Other areas were developed to a lesser extent and at a, at a later date. The low priority, which kept materials and weapons away from from this Cherbourg-Lehavre area and made it, so to speak, the Achilles' heel of the Nazi defenses, was due largely to the urgent necessity for protecting the seaports first and also to the general German lack of manpower, transportation, and supplies necessary if they were to create a continuous wall along the coast of France or on the coast of Western Europe from Denmark to Spain. Week by week through the winter, Allied reconnaissance showed the slow progress in converting scattered houses and villages into strong points, and Allied fingers were kept crossed as the Germans again and again showed marked signs of nervousness about this spot or that, but never seemed to get around to really fortifying the, this particular chosen stretch. Not until Field Marshal Rommel's first extensive Western inspection in February last did the enemy show increased interest in these invitingly bare beaches and river estuaries. Even then, he gave first attention to multiplying minefields in the immediate inshore areas, to lengthening and deepening anti-tank ditches close to the waterline, to emplacement of light guns uh, to fire along the beaches, and to general improvement of the deeper defenses. Only after the winter storms had blown out Along toward the middle of April did the four commonest types of offshore beach obstacles begin to appear. They were thick along our target areas, although still not as numerous as at many other points. But, of course, when it comes to attacking a fortified port, a place such as Sherbrooke or Le Havre, we shall find rather a different situation. We'll find the entire region guarded by belts of wire, plus anti-tank ditches up to 65 feet wide in the vicinity of the important towns and crossroads, strongholds, and batteries. Mine fields have been laid up to a depth of more than a 1,000 yards behind the shore, and some areas have been inundated, and most of the important roads have been mined. Fields have been strewn with posts, barbed wire, and garnished with anti-personnel mines to prevent landings from the air. And inside the important towns... The Germans have fortified buildings and constructed trenches and splinter-proof shelters behind the harbor areas for distances of one to three miles. However, we should not be overly impressed with these purely material defenses. After all, what counts is the men behind them, men in sufficient numbers and with sufficient weapons and ammunition to uh, defend these fortifications, which otherwise are simply obstacles which can be bypassed or gotten over. And the great German difficulty is a difficulty of manpower and of distribution of what manpower they have. So that if a great port like Cherbourg, for example, were to be cut off from all supplies, its garrison isolated, so that reinforcements could not reach it, it would not be the defenses themselves which would stop our troops from capturing it as long as they had the superior power and the superior strength to do so. And now, here again, is Bob Trout. That was
2: Major George Fielding Elliott, Columbia's military analyst, speaking to you from our Columbia News headquarters here in New York. I have a few dispatches which have come in and which I'm going to give you in a few seconds, but before I do, I'd like to remind all of you who are listening tonight that uh, in approximately three minutes, that is at 12.30 Eastern War time we who are on duty here at Columbia's news headquarters are going to take a brief intermission from our news coverage. Of course, we're remaining on duty at our microphones and here in the newsroom. We shall interrupt any programs to bring you late news that comes in, and we shall be back even if no late news does come in to keep you up to date with summaries and dispatches direct from Supreme Headquarters of the Allied Expeditionary Force. I really wanted to tell you that we are taking that brief intermission at 12.30 Eastern wartime, but to remind you to keep tuned to your Columbia station for the continuing invasion coverage. A dispatch that comes by way of London tells us that the German Transocean Agency says today that the Allies have made further landings at the mouth of the Orne River under cover of naval artillery. That's the German Transocean Agency broadcast that's reported to us from London. Here we have a brief indication of how bad the weather has been in the Channel. You know, we've heard from a good many correspondents now who have accompanied the forces who made the landing telling about the rising winds and the choppy sea in the channel. United Press war correspondent Robert Miller, who covered the first phase of the invasion from a P.T. boat, enclosed this note to his editor with one batch of copy that he sent in. He said, Sorry about the messy copy, but written aboard rolling P.T. Sure could use some seasick pills and liniment, plus a good pair of spurs. That's the latest indication of the state of the weather in the English Channel. So far, it has not interrupted our steady stream of supplies, but there's no doubt that everyone would feel a good bit easier if the weather would definitely let up and become very pleasant. Columbia Shortwave Listening Station here in New York has heard a BBC broadcast telling that the 1st Royal Air Force Beach Squadron has gone ashore on the French invasion coast to pave the way for a steady flood of Royal Air Force personnel who from now on will operate from the French side of the channel. These beach squadrons have the difficult job of bringing supplies to the spot, and BBC reminds us it's no easy matter, for it takes 24 tons of oil and gasoline to keep 12 Spitfires in the air for only four or five sorties. That is from a BBC broadcast which was heard here in New York by Columbia's shortwave listening station. And now we are about to... Interrupt our coverage temporarily. We'll be back on the air frequently during the night, however. This is Bob Trout speaking from Columbia's news headquarters in New York. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting
7: System. Columbia presents the nation's number one trumpeter, Harry James and his music makers. Columbia brings you Harry James, the nation's number one trumpeter, and his music makers, playing from the roof of the Hotel Astor overlooking Times Square in New York City. And we're going to hear songs that sung by Kitty Cowan and Buddy DeVito. And now, to begin with, here's an untitled original by Teasel. <laughs> It's the music of Harry James and his music makers, and that was a tune by Warren Tizzle. And now here is Buddy DeVito with an overemphasis on romance. Too much in love. for you both the words and music this time. It's Kitty Callan with a word or two to the wise. It could happen to you. a number which has had a lot of listening to and deserves it. Harry James and the music makers play on the Alamo. Harry James and the orchestra in a bit of reminiscing. I'll remember April. Ladies and gentlemen, from the roof of the Hotel Astor in New York City, Columbia is sending your way the music of Harry James and his music makers. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Once again, ladies and gentlemen, Columbia brings you Harry James, the nation's number one trumpeter and his music makers. We're to hear the songs of Kitty Callan and Buddy DeVito. And to start things here in this portion of our program, we hear Kitty Callan in the tune I'll Walk Alone. a bit of jive in both title and theme. Buddy DeVito sings it.
8: This world you send me, you give me that kick I need. God,
7: Allen comes along now to propound a bit of basic philosophy to the tune of Take It Easy. tune we can okay when we read the inscription on the title page. It's by Harry James called Backbeat Boogie. Ladies and gentlemen, Columbia has brought you the nation's number one trumpeter, Harry James and his music makers, in a program broadcast from the roof of the Hotel Astor, overlooking Times Square in New York City. Vocals were by Kitty Callan and Buddy DeVito. And now this is Don Baker reminding you that for the best in late dance music, always turn to the spot on your dial where the announcer says, this is CBS.